I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Conway Hall. Thank you for coming to this first event in a series of events to mark the 40th birthday of the London Review of Books. The proximate occasion for this event is the publication by Faber and Faber of this rather sumptuous book uh, entitled The London Review of Books, An Incomplete History. We hope that it's considerably incomplete. It's a kind of annual, a bit like the Beano annual, a sort of bumper book of the LRB. And you might uh, suspect that it will be not extremely interesting, but actually it really is. Um, <laughs> so it's full of you know, quite, quite fascinating things, sort of images of texts that's been edited, letters from people, uh, descriptions of the history of the magazine and so on. It's really, really good. And we hope, or at least Faber and Faber does, that you will purchase copies of this book at the end of the evening and there'll be a bookshop at the back. The first issue of the London Review of Books appeared on the 25th of October 1979 as a 28-page insert in the New York Review of Books. And I have here a facsimile of that edition. And looking through it, it's really quite interesting. We have John Bailey writing about William Golding, Carl Miller on V.S. Naipaul, William Empson on Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, Francis Winter on Hethcote Williams, and that's interesting because we've just published Hethcote's book about Boris Johnson. It's called A Study in Depravity. <laughs> and um, it's on sale at the bookshop too, and I hope at the back. <laughs> This is essentially a sales operation this season. Um, <clears throat> so there's Hethcote Williams, Frank Commode, and then, of course, the most extraordinary thing is a piece by Wynne Godley, the economist. Wynne Godley asks if Britain will have to withdraw from Europe. <laughs> Forty years later, here we are. Uh, so not very much has changed, you might, you might think. Uh, certainly it looks much the same. Carl Miller, who was the first editor of the London Review of Books, wrote in the first edition, wildly exaggerating the circulation of the magazine, as editors used to do. Um, I just quote one sentence from this. Literary journalism in this country shares at present in the country's contracted and suspended state, a state that will not improve if we keep our appointment with the worsening world recession predicted for the new year. Of course, things have changed. The world is very different. And what we will be doing this evening is talking, at least in part, about the things that have changed and the things that haven't changed. And with me to discuss these things are, on my immediate right, Mary Kay Wilmers, editor of the London Review of Books. Mary Kay was with the paper from the very beginning, first as deputy editor, then as co-editor, then in 1992 as editor. Before working at the LRB, Mary Kay was deputy editor of The Listener, which some of you will remember as a very important BBC magazine, which has a great relationship to London Review. Tearless. 
And she was at the TLS as, as fiction editor, also as fiction editor at the TLS. She's always been as much a writer as an editor. A collection of her essays, human relations and other difficulties appeared last year, again with Faber. You're beginning to suspect a relationship there. She's also the author of a family memoir, The Eitingens. On Mary Kay's right is Andrew O'Hagan. Andrew is one of Britain's most distinguished novelists and essayists. His first job out of university was as an editorial assistant at the London Review of Books, which he joined in 1991 and stayed with us for four years. He was for many years a contributing editor at the LRB and is now editor-at-large. His most recent books are the novel The Illuminations and The Secret Life, Three Stories of the Digital Age, a book of extended reportage essays. Next to Andrew at the end of the row here, also one of Britain's leading novelists and essayists, is John Lanchester. He too worked at the LRB as an editor, in his case between 1987 and 1996, when the sensational success of his first novel, The Debt to Pleasure, convinced him to devote his life to writing. His most recent novel is The Wall, a bleak parable for the age of global warming. Now to our special guests. First, on my immediate left, Sheng Yun. Sheng Yun is contributing editor at the Shanghai Review of Books and a much-valued contributor to the LRB. There's actually a delightful article by Sheng Yun in the present issue on Chinese millennials. Sheng Yun was instrumental in the expansion of the London Review Bookshop's empire from 14 Berry Place to Shanghai. And thanks to her, there are now two boutique uh, bookshops, two, two boutique sections of large Chinese bookshops in Shanghai, dedicated to the London Review Bookshop and curated by our booksellers here in London. Finally, on my far left is someone who really needs no introduction, Alan Bennett, one of the most prolific and creative figures of our age, as an actor, director and writer of plays and fiction. Everybody here will know this, but not everyone here will know that Alan has been an utterly loyal supporter of the London Review of Books from the moment of its birth. He is, in a way, our godfather. He has written for the paper on many occasions and has become well known for his annual diary. Now, the format of this evening will be as follows. There will be four ten-minute discussions of aspects of the history of the paper and its purposes and so on. And interspersed between those discussions, Alan will read briefly from uh, some of his writings for the London Review of Books. At the end of the evening, there will be time for questions. And then finally, I suppose I ought to introduce myself. I'm Nicholas Spice. I joined the London Review of Books in 1982 as publisher, and here I am still. So, off we go. I'd like to start really with the history of the paper, a few of the facts around how it came into being. Mary Kay, how, how was it that the paper came into being? Oh, it came into being because there was a, a lockout at the Times, and so there was no TLS. And a few years before that, something similar had happened in New York. There was, it was not a lockout, but there was something at the New York Times, a strike. And there was no New York Times. And in that period of no New York Times, they, um, Robert Silvers started the New York Review of Books. So when the, 
the London Times disappeared, Frank Commode wrote a piece saying, well, in New York, when this sort of thing happened, they did something, whereas we just sit here and do nothing. So we started the London Review of Books just to show that we could do it too. (laughs) And I think it was probably a condition, wasn't it? Or by the by, the New York Review of Books. I mean, the New York Review of Books were were interested in expanding their market in the UK and Europe, especially in the UK. They had been very very successful in America, and they saw this as an opportunity to expand their market in the UK. But the approach came from Frank Commode, did it, and Stuart Hampshire? Or was it their idea? Was it the New York Review of Books idea? I thought it was the New York Review of Books idea, but mm. I don't. I wouldn't actually no, but um, the, I mean Frank Commode was on the board, Stuart Hampshire was on the board, but I don't think they did anything except represent yes, yes. Silvers. Yes, but um, I do remember it being said that the New York Review of Books really only went into this venture on condition that the editorial team would be Carl you and Susanna, who had been together on The Listener, hadn't Susanna you? Clark, yeah. Susanna Clapp. Um, yes, we had been together on The Listener. I don't know that they said... I mean, they offered the editorship to Carl. Yes. And Carl chose Susanna and, and me, um, since we'd both worked with him and had, you know, given up our jobs because, because of him. Yes, yes. Um, so, yes, he... He, he, he put he it together. He re-employed us. He employed you. And, I mean, in those very... So, at the very beginning, it was a very small team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, three people. Huh? And one of the things well, you see quite clearly from the book is how precarious it was at the beginning. I mean, at 40 years' distance, it's sort of amazing that, um, you know, this great steady ship that you see now... Yeah, but that was... Made it look, and then make it look like it could close at any point. Well, yes, but that was the editorial mode. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I remember... I remember still is. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a mode, though, because I remember not very long after I joined in January 87, uh, the New York Review announced that it was starting a European edition. Yeah. And, um, you know, it didn't seem, you know... I mean, the worry was very genuine because we thought we might lose all the advertisers, lose all the contributors... Our circulation was, you know, still in single-figure thousands at that point. And so there was a kind of precariousness You mean the precariousness it. to them, not to us? No, to us, that, you know, as it were, if, if we lose all our contributors and lose all our advertisers. I mean, that seemed a thing that it was possible that might happen, you know, as of, as of spring 1987. Because I remember, I remember writing home saying, you know, I'm not sure I'm still going to have a job. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> My sense of it is that a lot of it was a manner of speaking. Really? Well, um, well, the word. Well, th- thanks for telling me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, John, as you say this, because I have a distinct memory of lying in bed next to Lotta, my wife, and saying exactly the same thing at that point, saying, you know, I'm not sure I can have a job soon. Um, interesting that. But equally well, I can remember Carl, Carl Miller at meetings, you know, adjusting his spectacles and saying in his inimitable voice, 
we have no material for the next issue. We are going to have to close. He, he, he used to say that. Do you remember yes. him saying that? Yeah, he talked all about the folding the paper all the time. Yeah. He talked about closing the paper all the time. And there being a hole in the page. Quite yes. late on, there was often a hole in the page, meaning they were waiting for a piece. Yeah. Waiting for a piece. But he had a very gloomy sense of the future, didn't he? I mean, it really was yes. extremely... Kind of... Sheng Yung, is this, does this kind of ring any bells with you? I mean, in, in Shanghai, do people say that kind of thing? Do they say, we have nothing for the next issue, I think we'll have to close? Uh, no. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, who owns the Shanghai Review of Books? Oh, there's a media group. It's a media group, so a yes. large group. It's large group. Of so, we're only a small section yeah. of it. So, we don't have a really a say of uh, closing the paper. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not up to you. No. <laughs> no. I can see that. Now, how long has it been published? Uh, it's uh, since uh, 2008. Yes. Yeah, we're supplemented to uh, Oriental Morning Post. Mm-hmm. Then, in. Uh, 2017, uh, we lose the paper form and it become a digital daily now. So it's a digital daily? Yes. My goodness. So well, we'll, we'll certainly return to that because that must be a lot of work. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there we go. I mean, just very quickly before we move on to Alan's first reading, I think it's worth kind of recalling what it was like in the early days. I mean, I joined when the paper had moved from it office above uh, Dylan's bookshop in Mallet Street and moved to 6A Bedford Square, which is now a very poshly refurbished Georgian office. But it wasn't very posh, poshly refurbished then, was it? No, you have the wonderful description of Carl coming in when after it had been burgled break, or yeah. something, or after a snowstorm. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't posh. But it wasn't posh. Yes, he came in through the door, which had been yes, gemmed right. open, so it had a jagged edges. And he used to wear a kind of Snoopy hat and a kind of airman's hat and a large fur-lined coat, the fur collar. Yeah. And he sort of, in mean, his case, uh, and he sort of bombed through this gap without missing a beat. I mean, he really didn't miss a beat. He just came straight through, sat down at his desk and started telling people to do things. He didn't notice anything at all. So it was, it was a very different thing from what it is now. I mean, it's interesting. Now we have... Circulation of 78,000. We have offices on three floors of 28 Little Russell Street. We have a bookshop and a cafe. But it really wasn't like that then. Uh, and I think I'd just say one other thing before moving on to Alan, which is that it's remarkable that Mary Kay has edited or been involved in the editing of every single issue of the London Review of Books since it started. And each issue is 50,000 words. A year's worth of issues is about a third longer than the Bible. Um, so she's edited around 1,000 editions of this paper. And the relentlessness of that two-week, two-month, two-twice-monthly cycle is really incredible. Um, so there we go. So, Alan, would you like mm-hmm. to read to us? I think I'm just the cheese in the sandwich. What did he say? I've kept a diary for almost as long as the London Review was... Been in existence. Um, uh, it's getting a problem now because so very little happens to me. But um, uh, so most of these entries um, are, are in the past. But uh, and I won't put the date on. The date was um, an early skirmish with with Carl Miller in the sense that uh, he he um, didn't want dates in the diary. Uh, and I apparently said, uh, well, a diary without dates is like a 
course it without stays. Um, but uh, this didn't carry any weight with him either. Anyway, um, Western Supermare. To see Mam at Western. I sit in the dining room of the home while they locate her coat. Two old ladies are waiting for their lunch, which won't happen for at least another hour. It went through my mind it was pineapple, says one, but I wouldn't swear to it. You have to watch her, says the other, pointing to an empty place. She'll have all the bread. (laughs) Mam's memory is almost gone, leaving her suffused with a general benevolence. I've always liked you, she says to one of the other residents, and plants a kiss on her slightly startled cheek. It's a beautiful day, and we we walk on the sands. Has Gordon been to see you, I ask? Oh, yes, she says happily, though I'm saying he has, I don't know who he is. (laughs) Do you know who I am? She peers at me. Oh, yes, you're my son, aren't you? And what's my name? Ah, now then. And she laughs as as if this is not information any reasonable person could expect her to have. But it doesn't distress her, so it doesn't distress me. We have our lunch, our sandwiches, on a hill outside Weston with a vast view over Somerset. She wants to say, what a grand view. But her words are going now, too. Oh, she exclaims, what, what a big lot of about. <laughs> there are sheep in the field. I know what they are, she says, but I don't know what they're called. Thus, Wittgenstein is routed by my mother. <laughs> in the evening, I often bike round Regent's Park. Tonight, I'm mooning along the inner circle past Bedford College when a distraught woman dashes out into the road and nearly fetches me off. She and her friend have found themselves locked in and climbed over the gate, or rather she has. Her friend, Murray, hasn't made it. And there, laid along the top of one of the five-barred gates, is a plump 60-year-old lady, (laughs) one leg either side of the gate, bawling to her friend to hurry up. I climb over and try and assess the situation. Good, says Mari, her cheek pressed into the gate. I can see you're of a scientific turn of mind. (laughs) Her faith in science rapidly evaporates when I try moving her leg and she yells with pain. It's at this point we become aware of an audience. Three Chinese in the regulation rig-out of embassy officials are watching the pantomime, smiling politely, and clearly not sure if this is a pastime or a predicament. (laughs) Eventually, they're persuaded to line up on the other side of the gate. I hoist Mary over, and she rolls comfortably down into their outstretched arms. There's much smiling and bowing. Mary's friend says, all's well that ends well. Mary says she's laddered both her stockings, and I cycle on my way. The few archaeologists I've come across in life were shy, retiring, and mildly eccentric. The archaeologists on television are loud, unprepossessing, and extrovert. Their loudness and over-enthusiasm 
to be accounted for, I suppose, by the need to inject some immediacy into a process which, if properly undertaken, is slow, painstaking, and more often than not, dull. Sir Mortimer Wheeler probably started the rot, and then there was Glyn Daniel and his bow ties, and today it's Tony Robinson, capering about professing huge excitement because of the uncovering of the entirely predictable foundations of a Benedictine priory at Coventry. <laughs> His enthusiasm is anything but infectious, <laughs> and almost reconciles one to the bulldozer. And there's always a spurious time limit, making it another version of ground force, where a transformation has to be wrought in the space of three days. The timetable of the resurrection would just have suited the programme maker. <laughs> the angel appearing to Mary Magdalene in the garden was probably Alan Titchmarsh. <laughs> and this is uh, an entry from New York. A sign on 7th Avenue at Sheridan Square. Ears pierced, with or without pain. <laughs> I'm reading a book on Kafka. It's a library book, and someone has marked a passage in the margin with a long, wavering line. I pay the passage special attention without finding it particularly rewarding. As I turn the page, the line moves. It's a long, dark hair. <laughs> That's it. I'd like now to talk a little bit about editing, about the editing process. I think it's entirely understandable that people basically assume that magazines are primarily the work of writers, that without writers you can't have good magazines. Well, of course, that's true in a very elementary sense. But really what is also enormously important is the process of editing. Editors don't tend to be particularly well-known, and what they do is not all that well-understood by people who haven't actually done it. But just as writers are important for magazines, actually writers without good editors are really not enough. Uh, and so there's a sort of way. Editing is the key to the whole process. Now, in the early days uh, of the London Review of Books, back in the pre-digital era, or perhaps one should say particularly in the pre-desktop publishing era, the editing process was extremely laborious in that it would require commissioning. And then what, what would happen after the, the... I mean, did the writers come with, the, with their pieces into the office? Or? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the single, biggest, the single biggest thing that's changed about the way papers work is that everything used to be in person. People would deliver their copy in person. Mm. And, um, and sometimes sit there while it's being edited. And, and the completely terrifying thing that Carl Miller in particular used to do is he used to like going through people's copy in person. And I think... <laughs> To make you sit, back make you sit next to him and mark things. And I think that was partly the... That and the thing about going into the room with all the editors sitting around was part of the reason why the poet Michael Hoffman once observed that writing for the LRB gives you cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I've just been through that. And, yeah. 
and I remember the first piece I ever wrote was a, re- was a review of Martin Amos, and Carl had sort of X three words in the first sentence. One was, one was irrefutably, and the other was secure, and I can't remember the third word. So it was really properly frightening. And that's much, a much gentler process when it's done at Remove. But it's actually it's changed the way that magazine culture works, that you don't have this constant... Vivian. Do you and think I mean, it taught you something about writing, having that experience? Oh, definitely. Well, it, it sort of accelerated the process. It, meant, it speeded up having to, uh, really having to internalise things, you know, because you, you didn't want to be told, you didn't want to go through that twice. Yeah. You wanted to um, learn what the rules were. And I, I think that was another goal of the paper. I mean, as were you editing as much as you have to, but the ideal thing was always to get writers who you didn't have to edit. And in the sense, if you can get people to internalise the way you want them to write, and to get them to write for the editor. And that was the thing you always used to say about the TLS, that it was better, it was better when it was anonymous because people wrote for the editors. So in the old days, the TLS used to only have anonymous contributions. Nobody ever knew who had written them, which, of course, opened up all sorts of possibilities. But, uh, yes, but... Um, I wouldn't go too too far on that. I mean, the, the TLS, what you did is you came in in the morning, um, you picked a piece out of a box, you made your marks, and you put it in the next box. And, I mean, I don't know, of course, this may not be the right thing to say, but... Um, the, the people who, who did... You had no stake in what you'd done. Yeah. Um, it, it and that just was very didn't different matter. On, on and, that. and I think it, it, it's, that sort of thing was very much to do with Carl, who saw everything as a cause rather than a pastime or whatever. Um, I mean, that's very interesting because I don't know, you've probably, we've probably already referred to the paper, which is just the way we talk about the London Review of Books, but which is actually slightly a strange locution. But the paper has a kind of hypostatic life. I mean, it exists somewhere. I think it's interesting, Mary Kay's use of that word cause, Carl did think of the paper that way, and I think you do too. And I think the best papers have always had that. I mean, going right back, Francis Jeffrey's Edinburgh Review was a cause. Cyril Connolly's Horizon was a cause. You know, it wasn't just, well, I could edit this way for anybody in the magazine. The tone's a movable feast. I could just do it anywhere. The magazine was a sort of living organism. And the question of taste and tone, well, the editors really... I mean, that's one of the things as a writer, that you might contribute to the tone of the magazine somehow over time, but you don't make it. It's not your invention. It's sort of no, pre- but it becomes part of... Yeah. I mean, the writers who write all the time, it becomes part yeah, of... Well, the that's the thing. relationship, really, yeah. over time. But yeah. you, you, you put on your best shirt, if you like, for that editor. You're trying your best for those editors. Um, and I think that their, their sense of the cause can be quite... Captivating somehow. And also quite intimidating. Yeah, definitely. And there's also one thing. Having um, worked in, knocked around journalism, written for lots of different papers at one stage or another, and worked in publishing for a a year or so um, back in the day, and one of the things about the way the paper works is the opposite. It really is the opposite of everyone else. That uh, You have to get very senior, and you have to have been there a long time to be allowed to edit copy. To be out, uh, before you can change anyone's sentences and before you get to work on text. That's the opposite of how, you know, in, in journalism, uh, in the papers, a s- sub-editor is the most junior person. 
the person who actually interferes with sentences. That's a, that's a low-level kind of technical job, whereas at the, at the LRB, that's the, you, you, know, you have to have been there a long time and, and shown that you know how to do it before you're allowed to. And in publishing, again, they don't even edit in-house at all now. It's subcontracted out. None of the major publishers have in-house. Yeah, they call it copy editing. And it's, and, it's, and it's outsourced. And it, incidentally, it's and wild. And it shows. And it shows. And it's wildly, <laughs> uh, and it's wildly variable. I'm reading a, a big, fat biography, who, which I won't identify now, at least in Freud. And there, there, are various, there are various bits in that where, you know, there are almost word-for-word repetitions. And, um, you know, it, it's really... You guys, I think, don't realise at the paper how countercultural that is, that only the big shots actually get to fiddle around with people's sentences. That's the exact opposite of how it normally works. Right. And the fiddling around goes down to the absolute minute level. I mean, I don't know, I, had a, I very, very occasionally write things to the London Review, and the last time I did it, I had the impression of being at a kind of spa in the sense that people would come down, because I'm on a different level of the office, and sort of tend to my, my prose. And then somebody else would come down and tend to it even further. And this would be a kind of layered process until somebody came down and said, you know, the word, vi- the phrase viable existence, not very good, really. <laughs> um, because viable in Latin means living existence. So this is really a tautology. You have to take that out of it. Oh, my God. This is just bliss. I mean, you know, <laughs> or some, not. some writers don't like it, but, but I must say I do. <laughs> I think it's very but there's that mysterious rule as well that when, ve- when a piece was very heavily edited, you'd almost always get a furious response, you know, an angry denunciation come back, and they'd quote something as a particularly egregious example of editorial interference. And you'd go back and look at the original, and it was the only sentence in the whole thing that hadn't been changed. <laughs> just before going to Shane Young, I want to ask you about life, life you know, this aspect of things, uh, the Shanghai Review of Books. But um, one of the things that really has changed, and that also kind of bore upon the rigour and discipline of the process in the early days. I mean, Carl was incredibly tough. I mean, I remember writing my first novel review and staying up very, very late on my birthday until the early hours of the morning and delivering it half a day late. And he just turned to me and said, if you do that again, you will never write this paper again. (laughs) Okay, fine. Like the hand coming down. And one of the reasons for that was that you couldn't keep correcting because the stuff had to go to the typesetters, where it was rather interestingly called Red Lion Setters, which always seemed rather odd because of the red setter thing. But the Red Lion Setters, which are down in Brownlow Mews, and somebody would get on a bicycle and take the copy down there. It would be typeset on big machines, brought back, and then pasted up by Brian Dalefield, who, who is still with us, doing a slightly different job, but related to that. And then, of course, there would be over matter, because there would be you know, bits of paper hanging off the page. Or holes. Roommates, yeah. And so you had to write or cut on the spot, didn't you? And that was, but you don't have to do that now. Well, I remember when I first arrived at the office, and there was this wonderful sense of chaos and smoke. Um, and one, one of the people who did the layout was walking across the office with a single word on the end of a scalpel. <laughs> a tremendous sense of... It could easily have been, you know... 1846. <laughs> you know, it wasn't Dickens's old house after all um, in Tavistock Square. So, Shingen, how did this must seem sort of slightly quaint and uh, 
Well, I think editing in the world is the same job. Yeah. Mm. But we usually edit very heavily uh, of the writer who's from abroad. Like, uh, you editing my work, <laughs> because my English is more my native tongue. So there's a heavy editing of uh, to fit it into Chinese, proper Chinese. Yes. Uh, and, uh, These are translations, as it were. Of no, no. Oh, no. Yeah, some, some Chinese who live abroad, expat, they can write. Uh-huh. But uh, the language is not uh, uh, quite set into the contemporary uh, mainland that sort of uh, style. So we edit it. But uh, there are lots of professors super against editing. Usually they submit piece and uh, warning you that don't change a word. That if we change something, there's a comma or something, we have to let them know. And what happens then? Then they say, oh, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And how many of you are... If it's a daily publication, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Yeah, we usually... Now we publish like one long piece, a day, one short piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, go with the long piece. And how many of you are working on that together? Actually, not many. <laughs> there's four editors, four editors and part-timer. Yeah. Wow. So plus, uh, altogether, there's five to six people. Amazing. And you do the editing on screen, or do you print it off and do it on...? We do uh, editing, first, uh, first round of editing on computer. Mm-hmm. Then we go to office once a week. Mm-hmm. Then um, in the afternoon, uh, we sit together and uh, correct everything on print. Very good. Well, so, Alan, would you like to... <laughs> well, this is um, part of the account of the uh, uh, lady who came to live in my drive uh, in... Um, 1976. Miss Shepherd's daily emergence from the van was highly dramatic. Suddenly, without warning, the rear door would be flung open to reveal the tattered draperies that masked the terrible interior. There was a pause, then through the veils would be hurled several bulging plastic sacks. Another pause, before slowly and with great caution... One sturdy, slippered leg came feeling for the floor before the other followed and one had the first sight of the day's wardrobe. Hats were always a feature. A black railwayman's hat with a long neb worn slightly on the skew so that she looked like a drunken signalman or a French guardsman of the 1880s. There was her Charlie Brown pitcher's hat and in June 1977, an octagonal straw table mat tied on with a chiffon scarf and a bit of cardboard for the peak. She also went in for green eye shades. Her skirts had a telescopic appearance, as they'd often been lengthened many times by the simple expedient of sewing a strip of extra cloth around the hem, though with no attempt at matching. One skirt was made by sewing several orange dusters together. When she fell foul of authority, she put it down to her clothes. Once, late at night, the police rang me from Tunbridge Wells. They'd picked her up on the station, thinking her dress was a nightie. She was indignant. Does it look like a nightie? You see lots of people wearing dresses like this. I don't think this style can have got to Tunbridge Wells yet. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Miss Shepherd seldom wore stockings 
and alternated between black pumps and brown carpet slippers. Her hands and feet were large, and she was what my grandmother would have called a big-boned woman. She was middle-class and spoke in a middle-class way, though her querulous and often resentful demeanour tended to obscure this. It wasn't a gentle or a genteel voice. Running through her vocabulary was a streak of schoolgirl slang. She wouldn't say she was tired. She was all done up. Petrol was juice. And if she wasn't keen on doing something, she'd say, I'm darned if I will. All her conversation was impregnated with the vocabulary of her peculiar brand of Catholic fanaticism. It was the language of the leaflet she wrote, the possibly with which she ended so many of her sentences, an echo of the subject to the Roman Catholic Church in her rights, etc., with which she headed every leaflet. I've had some manure delivered for the garden, and since the manure heap is not far from the van, Miss S is concerned that people passing by might think the smell is coming from there. She wants me to put a notice on the gate to the effect that the smell of the manure is not her. I say no, without adding, as I could, that the manure actually smells much nicer. <laughs> she had no sense of humour, though she occasionally made, inadvertently made a joke. Uh, at one point, she wasn't feeling very well, and I went out and, and said... Um, would you like a cup of coffee? She said, no, I don't want you to go to all that trouble. I'll just have half a cup. <laughs> okay. So let's now talk a little bit about the form of the essay, of the review essay, and the tradition in which the London Review of Books sits. I mean, one of the things that I've always, you know, reflected on is that if you look at something like this or like this, it's really not much different if you open it up from Tate's Edinburgh Magazine or Blackwood's was in the early 19th century. So we're now talking about 200 years ago. And if somebody were teleported here and they saw this, they wouldn't be particularly nonplussed. I mean, they'd find advertisements a bit strange and, you know, aspects of it. Certainly it's printed less close together and so on. Although actually there was a wonderful moment in the early days of the paper when we got a product placement on Coronation Street. And one of the characters said to the other, you can tell it's clever because it's printed so close together. <laughs> um, but... I mean, a TLS, certainly if you go back to TLS when you were working on it, it was printed much more closely together than this. But that's about the only difference. And, you know, the actual concept of this review essay, has it... And, Andrew, what do you think about that in terms of the 19th century essay and so on? I think it's been enormously consistent. And if you look at, you know, what's now called the long-form essay or long-form journalism, um, John and I have done fair amount of for the paper. I mean, you can, you can see the seeds of that uh, in some of those journals that you were talking about. It sort of dropped out for a while. I mean, I first arrived at the paper. You did have long pieces, but they weren't as long. The first very long piece um, was Ronan Bennett's piece about the Guild for Four. And I remember all the discussion, enormous um, you know, effort to get that piece and to develop it. 
develop it with Ronan and get it. And then it was the, I think it was the longest piece at that point that the paper had ever published. Was it 27,000 words? 25,000. Yeah. Um, but you would have found pieces like that, you know, obviously in Orwell's time and, um, and back there uh, in Trollope's time too. But um, the paper dedicated itself to that. Mary Kay has been pretty interested in those, uh, the state of the world pieces, if you like, to, to call them that. Um, long reported pieces, sometimes very personal pieces, confessional pieces sometimes. But I was going to say that the memoir, I mean, The Lady in the Van, was one of the earliest of these longer pieces yeah. that were about people rather than about concepts or philosophical issues or whatever. I mean, the paper used to have much more philosophy in it in the early days. Fairly hard graft stuff, I seem to remember. It's a kind of tonal thing almost. I mean, mm. it's always been my impression, certainly, and I felt it working there too, that the paper's attitude was that nothing was lost on it. I mean, as Johnson said, there's nothing too small for such a small thing as man. So Mary Kay would, this is a real example, she could ring you up and say, there's a set of traffic lights at the bottom of Tottenham Court Road that don't work properly. Can you get your shoes on and go out and write a piece about it? America, you're very interested in memoir, aren't you? I am. I was just about to tell the story of Edward Said, who, when the escalator at Tottenham Court Road um, had to be fixed, I don't know what was wrong with it, but it took much more than a year, and I got quite interested in in this business and why did it hold me up so much. And um, Peter Campbell was very good at mechanics or whatever you call that department of knowledge. And I asked him to find out and to write a piece about why it took so long to mend an escalator. And then a little while later, a year or so later, Edward Said said to me, why do you never ask me to write pieces like that? (laughs) (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) I mean, yes, there are famous cases of the... There was a a female billiard champion who wrote a diary and and, and it was an undertaker. Do you remember the undertaker piece? Yes, Thomas Lynch, who became quite Amazing. I mean, we got there first there with him. I think so. I I think one of the things about about the essay and about the essay review and things of form um, is, is it's quite difficult to construct a theory sort of explaining it. It just sort of is what the papers ended up publishing. And it's, it's difficult to approach it from, a, you know, the reason why, and it's difficult to construct an abstract or philosophical account of it. It's just, you know, it's in the paper's DNA. It is what has gradually evolved. You do think it's to do with the kind of subjective business of those editors, that Carl and Mary Kay, both together and separately, were interested in particular ways of expressing what life was like. No, I totally think that, but I just meant from the point of view of, you know, as it were, starting with an abstract idea of what the form should be. I don't think it began from a kind of a, a concern of this is what should sure. be. It was more about yeah. particular pieces. And there's been a curious match now with the culture having shifted in favour of l- long reads and something that's the opposite of the incredibly fragmented attention span we're all being invited to have. I think there's a kind of accidental confluence. One of the reasons the paper's circulation you know, has grown every year, year on year, for 20 years in a row. I don't think 30. there's a, 30 years in a row. That I, I'm sure there, there isn't another periodical in the world that can say that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is a, just a kind of confluence of that with the kinds of things that people increasingly want to read. 
as our attention gets more and more, more and more fractured. And, and I think by pure coincidence, it fits very well with if you're reading on a device or you know, you've got a 40-minute commute or something like that. The kinds of things that the papers has ended up specialising in actually fit very well with it. And then, of course, the podcast you, has taken that up as um, well. You don't think it's to do with journalism and that... I mean, Carl used to say when I said, well, I can't do it, I, I can't do it in an hour, and he would say, well, you have to, you're a journalist. That and, is very important. I mean, I think yeah. the and thing that one mustn't forget is that this is a journalistic paper. Yeah. And that you come from a tradition where the editor is held responsible for the circulation, isn't it? Isn't that right? I mean, the newspaper tradition. I don't consider myself responsible <laughs> for the circulation. Well, you, I've always been very impressed, Mary Kay, by the fact that you have always been interested in the renewal rate for the subscriptions. I mean, most of the readers, the LRB readers, and subscription, and the renewal rate, so the retention rate, the number of people who stay with it. Well, I don't like to think that people don't like it anymore. Well, that's exactly right. So there is always a sense of, you know, have people left at the interval, sort of bums on seats kind of metric. And that's a very journalistic frame of mind. So it's not a little magazine frame of mind or even an academic frame of mind where you're not actually worried all that much about whether people are going to buy this thing. And that kind of anxiety, I think, is a hugely important contributor to the nature of what this is. And I think the other crucial component is, as I say, I don't think there's a kind of theory behind it. I think it's empirical. It's what it's evolved to be. I think the sort of... People used to worry in places, papers like this New Statesman about the pantomime horse thing, about you know, politics in the front, literature in the, in the back. I think actually people, the LRB readers, understand very well. You don't have to explain to them the mixture of politics, journalism, history, fiction, philosophy. You know, they get it. And I think one of the ways it works is, is, that, is that magazines, papers, periodicals, they create the readership. Yes. But that it's, it doesn't begin with an abstract notion of who the reader might be, that you kind of... It's an if-you-build-it-they-will-come thing, that you sort of create an audience for it by doing it. And I think that the, the history and the trajectory of the paper shows that very clearly, that, that you know, there was, there once upon a time there wasn't a thing called an LRB reader. I'll get on to the LRB reader in a second, but I'd just like to ask Shen Yong, is there a tradition of the essay in China which you feel you're connected to in the work you do? Yes. Yes, and we love um, memoir piece a lot, too, mm. because usually that's where the gossips are. <laughs> you know, like um, recently, I think a very popular piece is uh, C.T. Xia, who's a very prominent uh, academic on, on, on Chinese novels, and uh, he has a like, lifelong being playboy, and uh, his wife is very... You can imagine that uh, she's very bitter. So after C.T. Xia passed, and... Uh, we published a series of uh, essays of, uh, by, by his uh, wife. And, uh, <laughs> Did she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she, she exposed a lot of uh, her late husband's doing. And uh, yeah, so then we, we always comment on in the office that you just have to live longer. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Who's the last one who have a control of uh, the story? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because it was the Alvarez thing, wasn't it? What was the, wasn't it Carl asked? It was also well, his, 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 um, his divorced wife. Yes. Yes. Um, so what, what is that? I didn't hear everything that Shani said. Well, it was so a I very similar know. situation. Oh. That day. 
Well, he wrote, Alvarez wrote a a, a book about divorce um, that had a lot about his ex-wife in it. And then when we asked his ex-wife to review the book, (laughs) everyone was enraged, (laughs) said it wasn't fair. Amazing. Well, just to pick up on this point about the, the, the reader... Obviously, writers, editors, staff, but without the readers, we would be absolutely nothing. So we are very grateful, if there are any readers in the audience, um, (laughs) to you for your devotion to the paper and its cause. But this idea of the person who is interested in a whole spectrum of things uh, is absolutely vital to this paper, but also to the tradition of the essay. And it used to be called used to be known as the common reader. I don't, and this expression, I think, is gone. Um, but that gives me the opportunity to ask Alan to read from his story, The Uncommon Reader. <laughs> I was just thinking about um, Alvarez. Um, I, I, um, I had to go on an Arts Council uh, tour of uh, Lincolnshire, and Alvarez was one of the people on the, on the panel. And um, it was just after he'd brought out The Savage God, the, uh, the book about uh, suicide, and in particular suicide of Sylvia Plath. Uh, and uh, he always read... We, we did about three gigs a day, and uh, each one he always read the same passage. And... Um, I got so that I couldn't hear this without giggling. Uh, And uh, it was appalling because, I mean, there was this tragic account and I was stifling the giggles. And uh, what impression it made on the school children, I got to know. Anyway. um, This is... um, this is an extract from The Uncommon Reader, which is a, a short story I wrote about, about the Queen, uh, um, assuming that she, she'd become an avid reader. Yem Forster figured in the book, with whom she remembered spending an awkward half hour when she invested him with the CH. Mouse-like and shy... He had said little, and in such a small voice she'd found him almost impossible to communicate with. Still, he was a bit of a dark horse, sitting there with his hands pressed together like something out of Alice in Wonderland. He gave no hint of what he was thinking, and so she was pleasantly surprised to find on reading his biography that he had said afterwards that had she been a boy, he would have fallen in love with her. Of course, he couldn't actually have said this to her face, she realised that, but the more she read, the more she regretted how she intimidated people and wished that writers in particular had the courage to say what they later wrote down. What she was finding also was how one book led to another, doors kept opening wherever she turned, and the days weren't long enough for the reading she wanted to do. But there was regret, too, and mortification at the many opportunities she'd missed. As a child, she'd met Maysfield and Walter de la Mer, nothing much she could have said to them, but she'd met T.S. Eliot, too, and there was Priestley and Philip Larkin and even Ted Hughes, to whom she'd taken a bit of a shine, but who remained nonplussed in her presence. And it was because she had had, at that time, 
read so little of what they'd written that she could not find anything to say. And they, of course, had not said of much interest to her. What a waste. She made the mistake of mentioning this to her private secretary, Sir Kevin. But ma'am must have been briefed, surely. Of course, said the Queen, but briefing is not reading. In fact, it is the antithesis of reading. Briefing is terse, factual, and to the point. Reading is untidy, discursive, and perpetually inviting. Briefing closes down a subject. Reading opens it up. I wonder whether I can bring Your Majesty back to the visit to the shoe factory in Nuneaton, <laughs> said Sir Kevin. Next time, said the Queen shortly. Where did I put my book? Having discovered the delights of reading herself, Her Majesty was keen to pass them on. Do you read, Summers? She said to the chauffeur en route for Nuneaton. Read, ma'am. Books. When I get the chance, ma'am. I never seem to find the time. Then that's what a lot of people say. One must make the time. Take this morning. You're going to be sitting outside the town hall waiting for me. You could read then. I have to watch the motor, ma'am. This is the Midlands. <laughs> Vandalism is universal. With Her Majesty safely delivered into the hands of the Lord Lieutenant, Summers did a precautionary circuit of the motor, then settled down in his seat. Read. Of course he read. Everybody read. He opened the glove compartment and took out his copy of The Sun. Others, notably Norman, were more sympathetic, and from him she made no attempt to hide her shortcomings as a reader or her lack of cultural credentials altogether. Do you know, she said one afternoon as they were reading in her study, do you know the area in which one would truly excel? No, ma'am. The pub quiz. <laughs> one has been everywhere, seen everything. And though one might have difficulty with pop music and some sport, when it comes to the capital of Zimbabwe, say, <laughs> or the principal exports of New South Wales, I have all that at my fingertips. And I could do the pop, said Norman. Yes, said the Queen, we would make a good team. Ah, oh, well, the road not travelled. <laughs> Who's that? Who, ma'am? The road not travelled. Look it up. Norman looked it up in the Dictionary of Quotations to find it was Robert Frost. I know the word for you, said the Queen. Ma'am, you run errands, you change my library books, you look up awkward words in the dictionary and find me quotations. Do you know what you are? I used to be a skibby, ma'am. Well, you're not a skibby now. You're my amanuensis. Now, to finish our discussions, I'd like to turn to the question of politics and the London Review of Books. And in a way, the relationship of the magazine to, to the culture. Uh, the New York Review of Books, the time when it launched the London Review of Books, had a lot of writers who were British. 
And they mostly came from Oxford and Cambridge or the London nexus with Oxford and Cambridge. One of the things that is really true about Britain, I think, is this extremely tight elite system out of which things like the London Review of Books and New York Review of Books and New York Review of Books benefited from it. I mean, they were often teased for the fact they had a lot of British writers. But one of the advantages of that was that the, or has been, that there was a, that this nexus between the universities and London, literacy and so on, also had tentacles that went out into the political world. And that used to be very strong. And it wasn't just the London Review of Books, of course, it was the, the weeklies. I mean, the weeklies in the 70s, the Spectator, the New Statesman, New Society, all those things, the Listener, were, played a very important part in the political life. And in fact, quite a lot of leading politicians would, would come into politics via those publications. And they spoke to each other. But this has changed, I think, a bit, hasn't it? Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, the, the Prime Minister is literally the former editor of The Spectator. Indeed. Um, and that's working out really well. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that... that I think there is an odd thing that more increasingly politicians haven't done anything outside politics and you're having those very narrow professionalised things and there certainly isn't that in general easy back and forth and especially maybe not in Labour politics. There was um, more of an overlap between a kind of uh, intellectual world and you, know, you had outright avowed intellectuals, Crossland, Crossman, all that sort of lot in the Cabinet and that's, nothing like that is true anymore. There's more of a separation between... You know, this, this world and that world. I mean, there's been such a desperate coarsening of the national conversation. We probably need it more now than ever. We can look back in the papers' history to a time when people who were uh, serving MPs or in some way in government, like Conor Cruz O'Brien, for example, or Tam Diel, or Eaton Gilmore, people from very different political places could do their daily work, as it were, but also deliver four or 5,000 words on Albar Camp. Albert Camus or the situation in the Falklands or they were properly engaged through and with the journal and they saw it as being part of the conversation that we were involved in nationally. Um, the paper, I think, tried a very careful and imaginative line with those writers. I mean, sometimes they were saying things which the editors didn't entirely believe themselves. Sometimes they were. Um, the paper's position on the minor strike, for example, would have caused some discussion um, its position politically since then on, on any number of issues um, could be a matter of hot debate in the office perhaps, but people like Tony Blair wrote a diary, people like Gordon Brown wrote for the paper. Um, it's never been in the business of, as it were, uh, closing its ears entirely to argument, and I think that's been one of its strengths. I mean, politics America has become, I think, increasingly important in the paper uh, during your editorship, would you say? I don't know whether it's more important. Um, the, I, like, I mean, I, I value it. I worry when we haven't got anything to say about certain things, but um, I think it's quite interesting when we don't always agree, though um, on the whole we do, or... I'm more likely to keep my mouth shut, but um, do you think it's more interesting? I think it's become more current with 
with what's going on. I, I do feel that. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I, people say both that there's more politics and that the paper's shifted to the left. I think there is more politics, but I don't think the paper has actually particularly shifted to the left. I think just the centre ground of politics moves so far right that you're sort of, you know, as well, you're standing what you thought was in the middle of the pitch, and it turns out you're on the extreme left wing just because they repainted the pitch somewhere else. Mm. Um, and I remember over things like, you know, the issue that's caused most trouble, uh, we had the most f- flare-ups and rows over the years, it has been about Israel and Palestine. And I don't think the papers shifted ground at all on that. And, um, no, and I, I remember, it hasn't. I remember Carl talking anything uh, about you know when there was some pushback against something that was published in the 80s. Carl, you know, writing a rebuttal saying that you know in effect we'd been accused of premature anti-Baganism, <laughs> um, which you know dates it as an observation. But I think quite a lot of those things that if you think of the papers' politics would once have been as it were, to the, right, but, to, to the but, right of the Labour Party, but that's now a long way to the left of the centre ground. Palestine is more of a separate issue that, that gets dealt with and we're known to have a position on it and it stands out. Other things and some of the best pieces are sort of in between politics and commenting on daily life, as it were. Mm-hmm. And... In a way, those are the pieces I prefer. Well, it's more interesting because party politics makes everything incredibly boring. Yes. And it's happened but in the media too, of course. The other papers, and what we notice, there was always some of this, of course, but what you notice now is that the paper you buy, or likely to buy, knows exactly what it's saying and to that audience. So the Daily Mail has got exactly the same attitude. That it, I mean, it keeps a constant... Uh, barrage in front of its readers and its readers like it. But other papers are like that too. I mean, the Guardian speaks to its readers. Um, and I think the paper has been particularly good at not assuming that its readers will always agree with it and always think the same thing. So if the pitchfork rabble comes after you because you didn't say what they expected you to say, yeah. that's a piece that's likely to have appeared but, in the London Review as opposed to the Guardian or the Daily Mail. But the Palestine is still the only issue on which we're very adamant. Oh, yeah, I know, because um, I used to answer the phone every time you published the piece <laughs> by Edward Said, and the cancelled subscriptions would be coming yeah. fast and furious down the line, as well as the, um, the flowery language, which mm. I enjoyed, especially. People did phone up, remember? Yeah, yeah. And also, there, I remember one of Said's pieces, that, that at that point, the ads on the website were algorithmically generated by Google. So uh, uh, Edward wrote some piece saying, I think the... The, the Oslo Accords were the Palestinian equivalent yeah. of the Versailles Treaty. Yeah. And, and uh, the ads on the homepage of the website were for tours to the Holy Land. Because <laughs> 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 they'd, they'd seen the word Palestine. Do, do you think that the... I mean, I'm, do you think... I mean, it's quite clear that the internet has changed everything. Well, that's the thing you said earlier yeah. on. Um, I said to Nikki that I thought the difference... a difference between young editors and very old editors, is that young editors edit blocks of text, they edit the argument, they move things about, whereas all I really do is rewrite sentences, and then Nikki replies. Yes, I mean, it occurred to me that that was probably a reflex of growing up with word processing and moving text very quickly around screens. But the impact of pieces now is quite different. I mean, in the 80s, 
if you published a really, really strong political piece, it went to the readership. It didn't go to anybody else. They might have passed on a copy to somebody. Yeah. But effectively, once it had been published, it was gone. And it had no further reach. Now, obviously, the thing can become viral very, very quickly. We've had pieces that have been read by two million people in 48 hours. And that's new. I mean, the technology definitely has changed that. that a piece can have a reputation among millions of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands, who haven't read it. It's just that they've heard about it, and it's been tweeted a lot, and they have a position on it that they don't agree with it, because other people that they respect or like have said something against it. And that's the reality of publishing into a digital uh, place. And it's also, I think, does it increase conformity, do you think? People's worry about the fact that they're going to be... I mean, sitting here this evening, you think... You, you have to remind yourself, at least I have to remind myself, that, I, that you know, all this is going to go out on the net. The things no longer die. They used to die immediately. So it you used be- to say, Mary Kay, give ephemerality its due. That's what mm. you used to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was really, really wise. You said, you know, why do we want all this stuff to hang around? Well, that's one of the weird things about the internet is actually that but this, the paradox of these immediate, transient, you know, tweets are actually there, archived and forever. Yeah. Um, and that's a new, a new thing in writing. Maybe it's a sort of even new thing in, in human culture, the combination of immediacy and permanence. We, I'm not sure we've ever quite had that before. I mean, one thing I would say is, is in terms of the, the paper, because it was always thoroughly argued over and picked over, um, you know, they, they aren't hot takes. Um, and I think one of the reasons that the pieces often do have that reach and scale is precisely because they weren't written in 30 seconds to an immediate deadline. They have all been... They're all fully cooked before they, as it were, released into the wild. Uh, and I think that's one of the ways in which the kind of taking down... We used to talk about the walled garden and the uh, sandbox and all that around the paper, and, and that, those walls... Um, being knocked down has been massively to the paper's advantage just yeah, because exactly that thing you're kind of it, you know it's um, the editor's effect, in effect saying fly my pretties fly when the new yeah. issue comes there's out there's a fantastic side to that you know the, the, the internet has been wonderful in that way that you know pieces can go right out into the world I mean we were used to a system on the paper where you had your known subscribers we knew who they were you had a database full of them we their addresses, and there was this, it was never been a paper, in other words, that sold a great proportion of its copies off the newsstand, so we sort of knew who was reading it, didn't we? But now, there's this sense of uh, just about anybody, anywhere can read it, and if you if the pieces are available, that's to say if they're not behind a paywall, then uh, a piece can you know, be really in the world in a way. It's been quite exciting to watch how that's happened. Yes. And it opens up the past as well, because of the archive, that's one yeah. of the things that's really interesting that, that, you know, a piece from, like, with that amazing Wayne Godley piece from October 1979 saying we might have to leave the EEC, you know, that would once have been completely inaccessible only to someone buried in Collindale newspaper archive, and now, in fact, you know, it well, can have a, a sort of yeah, afterlife. There's a quotation by De Quincey when he's talking about Coleridge, and he says, worlds of fine feeling lie buried at the bottom of the ocean, never to be recovered by man, you know, mm. things just disappeared and couldn't be reclaimed. But as Mary Kay pointed out, some of them are better left where they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, Shen Yong, you publish only on the internet, is that right? No, yes. Yes. And what is your readership there? How many people read it? Well, I think we got a great title mm-hmm. because everyone 
uh, when they hear of Shanghai Revel Books, they know exactly what we want to do, what we're trying to do. And the readership really educated uh, uh, college students or professors. That, so it's yeah. very academic, would you say, to a large extent? Yeah, or? quite academic. And how do you communicate with the audience, the readers? Well, it's free, mm-hmm. so it's online. Everyone can read it. But since we go to uh, digital, we, we lose like, uh, quite a handful of uh, professors because they prefer paper. And uh, they said, oh, you go digital. said, so when I have a paper in hand, uh, it's like you're serving me a tomato fried egg. And everything is uh, presented in full. And now you go digital, you know, every day you see a piece, another day a piece. So it's like you're serving me eggs and potatoes and salt and sugar. <laughs> in different plates, and then we don't like that. <laughs> That's very, very interesting. I mean, because, of course, the magazine on the internet no longer has the shape mm. that it has in print. I mean, the, there is a shape to each edition, isn't there? And you're much more likely to read a free stack. The idea, I wonder if we talk more about pieces we do. purely yeah. than we used to. We used to talk about the paper, and, you know, we used to talk about it's a good issue, it's a less good issue. The focus was much more on the issue. And it is more about pieces. I mean, I think that's, that is a, a real potential problem. It's a potential loss. So I think the founders of the paper, I think Susanna Clark, Mary Kay and Carl Miller, thought of themselves as literary journalists and thought of the relationship between the pieces across the magazine. And there's still that very strongly, that the pieces relate to each other, suggest each other, maybe rub up against each other in an odd way. But there was always a tradition of saying, nobody noticed. Yeah, there was that. Yeah, <laughs> there was always that, and there still is. But there's a danger that would be entirely lost, just as a formal thing for those magazine heads who are particularly interested in the way magazines are made, magazines of this sort. I think it would be sad to see that, because part of the wit of the paper is seeing how they've made the pieces relate. Yes. I mean, are your readers... How old... Do you know the average age of your readers, Shenyang? Not really. You haven't done any surveys to find out? There must be, but I don't know. Yeah, because we, we've aware. noticed, I think, that the average age of the paper... Paper's readers has gone down through the internet. There are now more young people reading it than before. Mm. So, that's so much for all that. I think we've come to the last of your readings now, Alan. Thank you. I was hoping somebody was going to say something about Alan Tyson, uh, who was a great friend of the paper. Uh, And um, uh, I remember during the Falklands War, he was a very funny man, very clever. He was a fellow of all souls. He was also a musicologist and a psychoanalyst. Anyway, um, during the Falklands War... Uh, I remember Mary Kay telling me that he, he'd wrong, uh, and um, somebody in the office had said, how long before the first joke? Uh, and it was in the first sentence. And he said, what is it this morning? Belletra or Belgrano? <laughs> but uh, he... Um, I'm going to tell another joke, which has nothing to do with the LRB. Um, he... Uh, he Another fellow of all souls was having a um, a dinner, and he was telling Tyson about it. And he said, um, 
I thought I'd start them off with the Jerusalem artichoke soup. And then I thought we could have a salad of Jerusalem artichokes. And Tyson said, surely once in Royal David City is enough. <laughs> anyway, um, I'll, I'll finish uh, my piece off with a, uh, a serious piece um, uh, about, um, I'm afraid, Brexit. Um, but anyway... Um, what? Another Tyson joke. I sure. thought while you were looking for the whatever you were looking for, I'd do the thing that he was also after being a musicologist or while being a musicologist. He was also a practicing psychoanalyst, and he thought the thing to do would be to put up a sign where the patient lying on the sofa could see it saying, least said, soonest mended. <laughs> I remember my last entry. Um, now that Brexit is upon us, I don't find my views have changed at all since the referendum or been modified by anything that has happened or been said since. It's nothing to do with the economic consequences of the pullout, which are debatable, to say the least. But all across Europe, the forces of the far right are gathering strength. This is so in Italy, Hungary, Poland, Germany and France, and even in what one had always thought of as the sensible countries of Europe, Holland and Denmark. They are bringing with them intolerance, xenophobia and anti-Semitism, as often as not disguised as common sense. With all our shortcomings, we are still a liberal society. And if there is to be a struggle with the far right, our place is alongside the liberal and social democratic parties in Europe. The flight into Brexit is still being presented as courageous. It isn't. It's cowardice. So I'd now like to open this up for questions. If you ask a question, please try and make it succinct and a question. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a little bit difficult to see. Oh, no, perhaps it's getting better. Ah, It's it's like the dawn coming up. Um, Ah, there we go. So if you just stick your hand in the air. Hello, it's the gentleman at the front. Wait, there is a, no, there's a, there's a, please speak into the microphone. Uh, you spoke about individual, big, um, long-form essay pieces. And I was wondering, when you have uh, a big piece, either you know, in terms of physical size or heart-hitting impact, and I'm thinking particularly about the Grenfell piece, what sort of impact that has on the rest of the magazine in the run-up to it? Okay. I didn't hear that. Um, what impact these big pieces have on the magazine as you have the, in the run-up, so something like Grenfell. I mean, how does that play in the whole process of producing the magazine? Presumably it's quite disruptive in, in many ways. Well, it's only di- disruptive, what, in the sense of the, how much room it takes up or, or what it... Disruptive of the process? No, because you... 
allow for things being longer and shorter. Yes, but I guess it's often the case these long pieces are pieces of political reportage so that they have a different kind of sensitivity to, say, book reviews, which are less, less dynamic in that way. Yes, I think that the... I mean, one of the answers, quite honestly, is that we're getting used to that. You know, that we haven't given many whole issues to a single subject. You mentioned Grenfell. That was an example. You know, we sort of learned on the job with that. You know, there were things that worked well with it and there were things that worked less well. Um, it was a very emotional, giant subject on which people had very strong views. Whether they'd read the piece or not, they would have strong views. We might say, we might agree, the editor, um, I was the writer of that particular piece, but um, I think we would agree that we, um, we did as much fact-checking and as much legal work and as much preparation as we could, but, you know, we could probably do more. Um, but the fact is, um, it's a hell of a uh, giant task to get a piece that's 65,000 words long. I mean, that's a book-length piece of non-fiction into the paper. And you've got to remember, I would like to say, you know, uh, we're here to celebrate 40 years of the London Review, but it's a very living organism, something in which uh, things are changing, growing, and we're learning things all the time. I was delighted to write that piece for the paper and felt um, you know, it was the only place that one would have written it, actually, at that length. Um, but it's, it's a live situation. Um, and, of course, with such an emotional subject, you know that the internet is out there and there's people, many millions of them, who'd already invested a lot in having made up their minds who were the guilty parties in that case. So the London Review had to publish into that atmosphere and we did our best. And I think the thing is to remember also, it's only a two-week cycle. And we've published, getting on for a 1,000 editions on the nail for 40 years. Small magazines don't live in that world. I and mean, if you're a quarterly magazine, I don't want to name names, but there are quite famous quarterly magazines that have come out late. Um, <laughs> the London Review of Books has never come out late once. How would we do that? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. You were there. <laughs> so, another question. Can you put your hands very boldly in the air? Um, so, gentlemen here. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes, you, yes, looking around for the microphone. Um, thanks. I know that um, the LRB has taken some flack in recent years um, on issues of diversity, um, proportion of uh, female writers, for instance, and I know more recently um, there have been some criticisms in terms of uh, sort of ethnic diversity, um, including the composition of the speakers on these events that you have lined up. And I was just wondering um, how you, whether you whether you regard those um, criticisms as legitimate and, what, um, and whether you are doing things to address them? Yes, I mean, this is an incredibly important question. And the answer to your question simply is, of course, we think this is a legitimate criticism. Um, there are two issues here. There's a gender question and a diversity question. I think, Mary Kay, you would um, speak to the gender question. The, I think the thing with the gender question that people often overlook is that it isn't just the question of numbers. It's also the impact and the influence on the paper. And it's true that there are 
been more men. We tr- we try to to improve that and to find more new people anyway, and to find more women writers. But people will send us a list of the writers who women who are writers, but not all women who are writers actually, if they think about it, want to write for the London Review of Books. And, but of course, when you say that, you sound so snotty that you just run out of ways of dealing with it. And you say, yes, we try. Um, but we have to rely on the women themselves getting in touch with us. I mean, even... I remember the, the letter that she said it was typed and I say it was handwritten from Rosemary Hill 20, 30 years ago asking if she could write for the paper and it was obvious from the way she'd written her letter that anyway we tried and it worked sometimes it doesn't and people are upset but I I think they aren't always thinking they're just thinking there's a there's an unfairness um, or sexism, or I'm not quite sure what it is when it's the fact that I'm a woman, Jean McNichol is a woman. There are two assistant editors who are women, so why don't we count? Um, We seem not to. And the other thing is, if you think of the tone of the paper, you think of Jenny Diskey or Anne Enright or... Hilary um, Mantel, Marina Warner. Hilary Mantel, Marina Warner, um, and plenty of, of others who have left more of a mark on the paper. I mean, the men mostly contribute opinion. Uh, <laughs> should I not have said that? Hmm? Should I not have said that? No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but the term comes much more from Terry Castle or Jenny Diskey or whoever than it does from a lot, from many men. Well, it came from you and also from Susanna Clapp. I mean, I remember that in the 80s. Easily the best writers for you and Susanna. I mean, it was just clear in terms of the form itself, the essay. As you say, the men would just dash off stuff. Yeah. Which then had to be Is that heavily how you edited. feel about it? Entirely. You just dash off stuff. Just dash off stuff, <laughs> oh, really. I don't. <laughs> I mean, it was in the case of the, of the man who thought his wife was a hat. Mm. You know, Sachs. Oliver Sachs. And that was basically written by Mary Kay. <laughs> um, if you go and look at the manuscript, I mean, there's not much left. <laughs> That's so not true. So, on the diversity question, the answer is we've done badly, and... We must do better, and we know that we must do better. But I'd like... It's not, it's not an excuse, but it is a sort of an explanation of, of a kind of how we hope to do this, is that you have to remember that the London Review of Books is not just a magazine, but that we have a bookshop which does 100 events a year, and we have a blog which is producing stuff all the time, is, is publishing very good material all the time. And we use these, we're using these as ways of attracting a wider range of writers. And if you go and look at the blog and you look at the event series, you'll find that the, that the spectrum is much wider. But the point is they have to be brought 
into the magazine, and we definitely know that. And there is no excuse for that, except that it hasn't so far happened, but we will try harder. I saw it observed recently, and I've observed it, I'm observing it now myself, I guess, that the book reviews in the paper very often don't address the books a great deal. <laughs> we get a lot of what stick about that. There you go. So a 3,000 word piece might have a couple of hundred words about the book in question. And I just wondered what the panel had to say about that. Well, well, I'll, I'll leave that say? to Mary Kay, but it's interesting. But you have you, to tell me what exactly he, he said. He said that, he, you know, that the proportion of an article that is devoted to the book under review tends to be very small, but he still goes on reading the paper, which is interesting. So you must know the answer to this. But there we go. Well, I don't what would know you... what the answer is. My answer would be, yes, we're at fault. On the other hand, it, it's more interesting to hear what's in the book than to hear what's wrong with it in Chapter 5. Um, I mean, you have to give some idea of, of what's wrong, but... Basically, you try and show what's, what's interesting. And I don't think, I don't know, it's never happened to me as a writer, whether one would resent the fact that one's material has been used. I don't think so, because it's still your material in your book. And also, the thing is, we're that. not, it's perfectly self-evident that we are not a book review in that sense. That's perfect when we're not also confined to discussing matters connected with London. So, you know, the thing is, um, it's neither a view nor about London, but that, it, such is life. But um, the, tra- the, tra- the training... Let's the, have the tra- tra- on one more so, The training I had when I started writing for the paper, and have now largely internalised, is that the book is an occasion for an essay on the subject. That's the way I was... You know, taught to treat it. And the other thing that comes from Mary Kay is that they always, is that this, any sentence that you could put on the back of a book is a bad sentence. <laughs> you know, so they, they always take those out. If you put anything that would work as a publisher's quote, that's going straight in the bin. Cheng Yun, do you suffer from criticisms that you, the reviews you publish are not about the books that you. Not really. No. <laughs> so you're much more virtuous in that respect. Problem either. No, yeah, this is very good. Yeah, because it's much easier for us because we don't have that problem. It's mm. all Chinese mm. who's contributing. But we don't have uh, much thing to do with Shanghai either. Mm-hmm. So it's a different, a different. Very second. different. Okay. I think yes. the gentleman's question is, is fascinating though because it really points to what kind of paper is it. And, you know, yes, you could occasionally mention the book, as long as you don't use the words poignant, moving, touching. <laughs> so on the back, as John says, that would have to go. But um, my understanding always was, I think, uh, our understanding that present and past editors shared was that, yes, it was, the book provided the occasion for a review on that subject, but it also took the argument of the book forward. It went further than the book, not just by saying the book was wrong and bad, but actually... The, the right reviewer would pick up on that subject and go further than the book, if possible. And so, as a form of knowledge, the book and its review together would be quite an experience. OK, let's have two more questions and then wind it up. Oh, goodness, from the balcony, yes. Ah, yes, John, if you could just look... I can't see anybody at all, so if you just give the mic to somebody. Thank you. Uh, 
one of the things that I've, I've always deeply loved about the LRB is its font. And I was wanting to ask... I, I think I'm right in saying that the font has stayed the same for 40 years, hasn't it? And I wanted no, to ask... No, it hasn't. Is, no, is that no. right? No, it's not correct. No. <laughs> the font. The font. I mean, we changed it. I mean, the, the very important person in the history of the paper, right from the beginning, was Peter Campbell, who, who died in 2011. And he was the designer of the paper in the first instance. He was also actually quite active in setting up the arrangement of the New York Review of Books in 1979. And we changed to Quadrat sometime in the late 80s, I seem to remember, and we also changed the leading. And that, I think, is the, the occasional format changes. I mean, there were moments when it got very, very large formatted, the magazine. Do you remember that? Yeah. It became almost square at one point. But basically, it settled down about 1982. It, was, it used to be planting for the headings and Times New Roman for the text. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, the headings are still Caslon planting. or something for the... Mm. It, is, it, is it still... It's not time, it's still Times New Roman. I think that people in the audience... The editors can show... Oh. Gee, it, what's the... Old quadrat. It's all Never quadrat. There you go. Thank you. It's in the old days, it's funny about the democratisation of fonts because, you know, in the old days there was a thing that the only people who ever t- talked about fonts never talked about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been, it's been opened up much more now, I notice. OK, last question here, uh, lady on the end of the row there. Uh, do you commission shortcuts and the diary pieces... Or do they just come in? And uh, do you build up a bank of them? Do we commission commission shortcuts and diary pieces and do we keep a spike of them? We we commission some and some get sent in. And yes, we do keep them if... Yeah, if it's appropriate to keep them, we do. Um, I mean, bank. Yes, yes, we do do that, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing about diary pieces is that that's the moment in the paper where your antennae are always out looking for people who have an interesting perspective on things. Lighthouse keepers, lock yeah. keepers, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. They're not thousands of them. <laughs> no, it's what has made the diary a very nice feature of the paper, I think. But I remember, again, the, the injunction that people who said, said they wanted to write diaries and were worried about what to say, and you'd always say the same thing. Do you remember what you used to say? No, what did I say? You said, just write about what you had for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd often be completely outraged. (laughs) Very good. Well, look, thank you so much for coming this evening. And since a lot of you may be our readers of the paper, I'd like to thank you for your loyalty to the publication. I'd also like to thank everybody, both people who are here and who are not here, who have worked for the paper over the 40 years uh, that that has existed and helped to make it the thing that it is. Imperfect, though, in some respects, it remains. Thank you very much. (laughs) 